This week on Art of the Air features large format black and white photographer J.D. Nolan, whose works in still life and landscapes. Next, novelist Lisa Grozik shares her writing journey about her series of two supernatural-based novels with a third in development. Our spotlights on Melly Hoppy's new free class, Mindful Movement for Seniors, starting March 11th at Long Beach Community Center. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. I'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air, and next, this time in Art in the Air Spotlight, Millie Hoppy. She is now doing a project uh, through the Indiana Arts Commission. She is a dance teaching artist and will be offering a movement for seniors at the Long Beach Community Center. Uh, that'll be coming up in March. It's a mindful movement for seniors, and it's going to be wonderful. And the last time we had her on, if you want to hear her whole interview, is uh, October 28th of 2022. Millie, welcome back to Art in the Air, and especially Art in the Air Spotlight. Thank you. It's great to be yeah. here. I know it's so nice to see you, Melly. <laughs> so, Melly, tell us about this uh, project you got going. It's uh, something for people that have no dance experience, so you're not teaching that, but it's just uh, an interesting project. And I think what the Indian Arts Commission is involved. Tell us about that involvement. Yeah, um, there were 35 um, artists throughout the state that were selected to be the second cohort of the lifelong arts training. So we did um, three days of training with a national. Um, organization called uh, Lifetime Arts. So it gets a little confusing. There's lifelong and then there's lifetime. <laughs> and um, we did a national three-day training with them. And then we basically proposed um, what we would like to do with seniors. So I proposed a seven-day, um, seven-week um, residency, basically, with seniors, uh, one workshop a week. The final um, day will be a sharing and um, it'll basically be improvisation for seniors. I taught uh, stage movement and improv for many years. And um, 
I'm used to working with non-dancers. So it's a, it's a way for people who are not necessarily comfortable or don't think of themselves as dancers to move and to enjoy the community and the benefits of moving. So it's not, you know, it's concentration, focus, community building, um, flexibility, balance, all of those things that dance have to offer without feeling like you're um, in some kind of structured class and maybe you don't have the abilities to do maybe ballet or even jazz dance um, or, you know, traditional modern dance classes. So Mele, um, can you give us an example of what a class might entail and what would be expected? Um, it, my, I'm basing the classes on the elements of dance. So I, I consider there are five elements of dance, body, action, space, time, and energy. So with the body, <laughs> the first class, they may be making frozen positions with their body. And that's any position they can do. And then maybe they're working with partners going back and forth with making what we call shape in dance um, is actually a frozen position of the body. Uh, for action, we'll start with walking, <laughs> and then maybe we'll add a, a freeze, and then maybe we'll go backwards or sideways or whatever, you know, depending on what the comfort level is in the class. I've been doing a lot of um, training on inclusive teaching, and it's very interesting. Um, some of the artists, you know, think of um, the goal is that everyone is included so that we don't do anything that is going to stretch somebody to a point where they don't feel like they can participate. So whatever action, whatever movement we do, it's not going to, you know, we're not going to do anything that would exclude anyone. Um, right. So that means like if somebody needs to sit in a chair doing it, that that will be available. That will be available. And maybe we all do a chair, chair. dance for a while, or we just do something with our arms or, um, you know, we we um, definitely there will be chairs um, around the space so that if people don't feel like they can stand even for the whole time, they can participate sitting. Yeah, balance is such such an important thing. So it's wonderful that you're doing this class because it will promote that. You know, how yeah, to find your, yeah, how to find your balance. So how many? Um, how many participants will you be having in the class? Do you, um, or what's your goal? I, my goal would be to have 20 or 30 participants. I have already have 12 people um, signed up, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, so uh, I think, I think it's going to go, it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, and, um, but I think, it, you know, the whole, a big part of the goal of these, um, these workshops, the, the lifelong learning is to, build community. And I think you definitely want a certain number to have a community. Uh, it's hard to have a sense of community if there's three or four people. So, you know, we want to have close to 20, I think, to have a, a sense of a community that we're building a community. So knowing you, I, I know this is going to be very successful. So with the IAC, are you, are you, will you be allowed to be in like the cohort 2024? Or how would you be able to continue on with this if it is successful? This, um, it's a three-year grant, so this is our my first year. So it, it, we, we are expected to do it two more years and build on this. So anything that maybe didn't work quite so well this time, we can um, kind of flesh that out and um, next time, you know, make it stronger or whatever. Um, so that's really exciting that it, it is a three-year grant. So it yes. will happen next year. Um, Brilliant. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, because you want to keep that community going. 
Right, right. Yeah. And who knows beyond the, this grant what, what could happen. But it's it's exciting for me because I do still do a lot of work in Indianapolis. And I think it's fun to be able to do something in my own community and um, with people closer to my age <laughs> than uh, the children I teach uh, most often. So. Well, we're in about our last minute here. We want to give you a chance to tell people okay. how, uh, where you're going to do this, how you're going to do it, how they sign up for it, and everything like that. All right. The workshops will be taking place starting March 11th through April 22nd, and they'll be in the gym at the Long Beach Community Center, and that's 2501 Oriole Trail. Um, if they'd like to register, they can email me at M-E-L-L-I-H-O-P-P-E. 16 at gmail.com. Okay. And uh, that's wonderful that you're going to see that uh, Mindful Movement for Seniors offered at the Long Beach Community Center. Millie Hoppy is going to be doing it. And you can find out information about that. It'll be starting on uh, Mondays, March 11th through April 22nd. Millie, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air Spotlight. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for offering this. And a quick Spotlight Extra, applications for Lake County Public Library's third annual Creative Arts Summit are due March 18th. Information is at their website, lcpl.org cas. Art on the Air Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art in the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. Hi there. This is public radio theme composer B.J. Lederman, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome J.D. Nolan to Art on the Air. J.D. is an Indiana-based photographer. His camera is a 4x5 large-format box-style camera, capturing stunning black-and-white images. Um, J.D. is also an Indiana artisan. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, J.D. It's really nice to meet you. Oh, thank you very much. Well, and we were referred to us by uh, the Indiana Artisans. Uh, we like to thank her for that. We've uh, been connecting with them. But we really want to know all about you. I always call it your origin story, how you got into photography. But even before that, how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about J.D. Uh, well, I was born in uh, January 19th, 1943. So I'm 81. Uh, but uh, went to school in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was born. Uh, went to St. Patrick's uh, grade school. And then I actually transitioned in my freshman and sophomore year to a seminary where I studied to be a priest for two years. And at the end of the two years, I decided that Richard wasn't what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I went back to Fort Wayne and finished up at Central Catholic. And then uh, it went to just a small college in uh, uh, Fort Wayne, uh, International Business College. And studied to be a, uh, an accountant. I got my degree in, from there. And then I got a, my first job was with Peter Eckridge and Sons out of Fort Wayne uh, in their accounting department. And then uh, I was I got married at the time. And uh, my uh, father-in-law at that time was in, in the entertainment business, did uh, boat shows and things like that. And 
he asked me if I would come to work for him because he only had two daughters, the one I was married to and an older daughter who lived up in uh, Chicago area. And uh, so I said, oh, what the heck? I was 20 years old. So I thought, what the heck? I, I can try it. If I don't like it, I, there's always an accounting I go back to. Uh, but then uh, he passed away three years after I went to work for him. And then I took over the business and expanded. And I started doing things like, oh, God, it's in wrestling for a while, roller derby, uh, uh, the, the globe trotters, stuff like that. Got in a little, little bit in rock and roll business. And I've, I've spent 15 years up in Fort Wayne as a promoter where I was either producing the shows or buying attractions. And, you know, then then you'd go out and sell tickets and hope you took in more money than you had to pay out. Yeah. <laughs> so you really had a show business That's career there. <laughs> yeah. And then I got uh, from uh, the roller derby, we, we met two guys. We, we we owned the rights to roller derby for for Indiana and Michigan. And uh, we're doing in, in Indianapolis. There was two fellows that were, were the promoters and we, we were the presenters. And... Uh, through them, uh, one day they called me out of the blue and offered me a job. They'd just taken on a, a situation at uh, Butler University at their Clues Hall, and they were going to uh, uh, be or buying uh, touring Broadway shows and things like that. And they needed a, somebody to do their advertising and on site looking after things, and they couldn't do it themselves. So I took that job, and uh, that was the best thing I ever, best move I ever made. <laughs> I finished my twenty-five years up working for them, uh, especially the one guy in particular. But uh, and then I, I, I actually took over the running of uh, Starlight Musicals, which was the big thing down there, uh, for three or four years, and then I, it was a nonprofit thing, and I got kind of tired of that after a while because. Sometimes you didn't know where the money was coming from. <laughs> and, and and I started out in the box office. So I knew all, all the people in the box office, all the ushers and all that stuff. And I thought, God, if I got to face these people and I don't have any money, I I would, wouldn't have the heart for that. Right. So I, one day I told him I, I just can't do it anymore. And he threw a book on my, my desk and said, uh, read this because you're going to be my next company manager because he was doing touring Broadway shows at the time. And I spent six or seven years as a company manager. I'd go into New York and pick up a, uh, the show that was going to be there, do three weeks of rehearsals, and then we'd go out on the road all over the United States, uh, Canada. So we did some shows uh, in Mexico, uh, and, and uh, we sent some over to Japan, stuff like that. And at, at the end of that period of time, I had uh, open heart surgery when I was 47 years old at 1990 and uh, listened to the, the actors complained because they had a, an eight o'clock bus call on mon on Monday morning when we we're traveling to the next show. I this got to me so much because <laughs> I thought you get complain about the big things in life, but an eight o'clock bus call is not a big thing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that's why I went in to him one time and I said, I, I really can't do this kind of thing anymore. And he said, well, I understand that. He said, because I want my company manager or uh, the uh, head accountant to be here in town instead of at New York. 
he said, so you're going to be my next pick, my next dinner Roger. <laughs> oh, there you I go. Finished out the run from, uh, oh gosh, but not 92 till 2003. And that was the end of my, my, my living 40 years in the entertainment business. That's... Oh my gosh. You know what it makes it just listening to that. I feel like around the world in 80 days, it's so serendipitous <laughs> the way you tell it. <laughs> and t- touring is tough to do. I mean, it is, but you're right. Uh, sometimes actors are kind of like trying to herd cats uh, in those situations. Oh. Well, you know, they were all, m- most of them all came from in, uh, New York. Right. I thought, you know, if you're living in New York, you've got to be able to fend for yourself, you know. But boy, as soon as as soon as I came in the first day of rehearsals, it's like, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? <laughs> <laughs> but oh god, but it was a great life because I enjoyed it very much. I I look forward to going to work every day of my life. Uh, I just been blessed until you didn't <laughs> until you didn't like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I'm going to reel you back to to elementary school for a minute. So in your in your schooling, were you did they have art classes? Because I know in mine, in my early education, we did not have them. So was um, so was photography at all part of your childhood, the documenting of time? No, not at all. Uh, I tell you, the, the, the way I got into it was, I'd been going to summer art shows and gallery openings for a long time and i was attracted to black and white photography in particular and i think it was because i saw ansel adams work really early on and i was just so taken by his images they were in the 40s or 50s and this was in the 80s and it's just that they were so they were old but they were so impressive to me like i I couldn't master printer I couldn't just walk by them, you know, you you had to stop and look at each piece and you'd be 10 or 15 feet away and you'd see something in the print that was looked like it was all black. And then as you walked up and got within five feet or four feet from it, you're looking at these things that are all black and you're seeing texture all of a sudden, you know, and it just impressed me. But the one thing I, I saw, I started to see in black and white photography was uh, or, or just photography in general, excuse me, was something would be tack sharp in your in the image and something else would be a little bit out of focus. And I thought, that can't be a mistake It's it, that they made and they're trying to sell it, you know. So I, I wanted to take a class and learn how they did that. And that's how I got started. I did a class at the Indianapolis Art Department. And they offered a black and white class on Saturdays, and so it didn't interfere with my work. And by the third week, I knew pretty much I'd learned basically how how you, they accomplished it, you know. But and I thought about dropping out of the class at that time, and I thought, well, heck, I paid my money out, just do the whole thing. And then we got to the fifth week, and we started to do our first enlargement, and that was you know, like, wow. The dark oh, room. <laughs> uh, you put you you got the light in there in your paper. You flash the light and you put the developer, and all of a sudden this black image comes up, and it just it impressed me to devil. And that I was fortunate enough that the girl that was teaching the class, uh, she saw in me something, you know, and 
the other guys would come out of the, the dark room and show her something that they just did. And she would say, oh, that's really good job, you know, Joe or whoever, you know. And I would come out and she would look at it and say, I think you could do a little better job with this thing or or a little add some light or dodge a little bit here. And I'd go back in and do it. And eventually I took two my, my two beginning classes from her. But after that, I met a man who taught at the Indianapolis Art Center who uh, actually founded the photography department. But he worked for Ansel Adams for like 13 years in the wow. workshops in Yosemite. And I took a class from him. And then the following year, I think it was 99, he uh, he lived, He had a summer place in Idaho. And he would take a group of campers out there, like eight eight of us all together, and travel around. We, we spent a week and we'd photograph all kinds of things, you know. And then, and while I went, while we were out there, uh, a girl was his assistant. And she came up to me one time and she said, well, Mike and I are breaking up after this is over with and uh, he's going to need a dark room assistant. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. Because he, t- he used to tell great stories about Ansel Adams and stuff like that, you know. And uh, I thought, well, it'd be a good opportunity to, to learn some more and not have to pay for classes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, J.D., what camera were you using during all this time? A 35 millimeter uh, Minolta. Oh, and it was, my camera. It didn't even belong to me. It's a good friend of mine. She had the camera and didn't use it much. And I, I shot for a year and a half with it. Uh, and then when I did this workshop out in Idaho, he, he had a list of a bunch of things you had to have. And I thought, well, I'm not going to buy stuff for her camera. I'll just have to buy my own. And that was where I bought my first medium format camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, uh, I well, actually through Michael, I met uh, or was introduced to John Sexton, who was Ansel Adams' second to the last darkroom assistant. And I went out and did a workshop with him, a week-long workshop with him. And that that was a pretty good thing. And then I came back home, and later on, Michael told me about a guy up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, whose name was Howard Bond. He he took uh, Ansel's uh, workshops out in Yosemite, but they had become pretty good friends because he, he was a, taught me music at the University of Michigan. And Ansel Adams, I, it's a little known fact, but he studied to be a, a concert pianist, which a lot of people don't know, but they had that one thing in common. And he, uh, he became a pretty good photographer himself, you know? So, and that... But so uh, my experience with those three fellas were that they all used medium format cameras. And six years after I bought the medium format one, I thought, what the heck, I'm, I'm going to try it large format. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had studied, the, did a lot of research, and uh, uh, I came up with a, a Wizard technical field camera, four by five. And that really impressed me the way that was made. And, and they at one I was I used to buy a lot of stuff on eBay, and one day I, I ran across the one uh, for of uh, one model I wanted, and uh, I, the guy who was selling it was from 
Michigan, uh, Muncie, Indiana, which is like 45 minutes away from me. And I was the winning bidder on it. And I called him up and I said, I'm, I can just come up and pick it up. You don't have to mail it. And he said, good enough. And so that's how I got into it. <laughs> that was in 2004, in the, in the fall of 2004. Then I read a, one book I bought, and I read must have read that book four times, learning the techniques you had and what you could accomplish with that thing. And then in January of 2005, I took my first picture. Wow. Now, did you do medium format before that, like a, like a little Roloflex or something like that, or you just went straight to a box camera? No, I uh, I went to uh, it was a, a, a it was a like a box thing, but a small thing. It was a, a six by four five. Okay, yeah, right. So that's uh, you've been pretty much shooting that uh, all the time. Um, we'll talk more about your images, but I always I'm curious: Have you ever dabbled in digital at all? You know, separate. You obviously not from the four by five camera, but have you explored that at all and seen the similarity between what you do in a dark room and what you do like with a Photoshop or have you even touched on that? No, I've never touched on it. <clears throat> I don't, I've never owned a, a, a digital camera or anything like it. Right. I got my iPhone and I take <laughs> the funny thing with that is I'll, I'll be someplace and I'll see something I'm thinking about buying, and I say, God, I got to remember this price and what it was. <laughs> and I'll drive away, and I'll, I get home, and I think, geez, I could have taken a picture. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think the thing is a camera. It's a, it's just a phone to me. Right. right. Or else, you know, the you know, with the four by five, it's it's not an immediate process where. So I would imagine, like, camera in your mind means extended exposure you yeah. know so and the, the one thing i found out that i really like about the medium format is that it slowed me down where you might be walking someplace you know in the woods or wherever and you see something that you think is neat you're snapping three or four shots well with a large format it takes a little bit of time to set the thing up and a lot of times i'll be halfway through setting it up and i'm continuing to look at what i'm photographing and all of a sudden the excitement isn't there, uh, you know, and so I just back up the camera. <laughs> That's where your phone could act as like we used to use Polaroid to at least get, you know, a, a look-see before we committed. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you purchased the first four by five um, from the gentleman in Muncie, had he been using it and were you able to get any no, information from him? No. Just from watching Michael uh, with these workshops, I went out with him a few times as his assistant too, uh, to just watch him work with it. Uh, but I had never worked with one before at all in my life. Our audience might be interested in some of the differences between you were shooting film 35 millimeter to a box camera, especially our photographers that listen to this. Um, tell them maybe your process of setting up. I mean, you know, it's slower, but also like the resolution you get on a four by five piece of film. Yeah, that's it's amazing. It's, first of all, you're working upside down, and you got to remember that the left side is actually the right, and the right side is actually <laughs> the left. One of the first times I was taking a photo, I got I saw something on the left side. That I thought, oh, I don't want that in the picture, and I moved it over to the left. All of a sudden, it was in the middle. That's <laughs> <wrong. laughs> <Wrong. laughs> Yeah, I, I, I should move it this way. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, it impresses me a lot. It, 
because you a, a small aperture and a long shutter speed, you get so much more information on your negative than you do with something with, with something that maybe f twenty two is the the big thing. Uh, but uh, those are the big differences, I think. So, you know, you have a lot of images. It's like two bodies of work, the images outside and then the images that you've been taking in your studio of, um, like, the flowers. Yeah, right, right, yeah. And so. Yeah, the, the, the studio is really straightforward work. You know, there's not a lot of twisting and turning and stuff like that you do. We're outside, it, and I don't really do much of that anymore because of turning 81, and I haven't for about four or five years I've just been concentrating on the florals, uh, but I, I kind of miss it, you know, it's, it's, but it, it, just lugging the camera around and carrying the backpack and all that stuff. <laughs> it just is in, in the, it's not my world anymore. Yeah, I always wondered because you're shooting in public places like the cathedrals and things. And I always wonder because as sometimes you're lost in the experience and you don't notice the photographer there. Are there any... Have you yeah, had, the, yeah, a, or somebody's walked into the frame? It, yeah, well, yeah, it's, I've never really had that experience because I'll wait around in, in anything, especially outdoors, till the people are gone. Uh, I, I remember one time I was in uh, oh, Mon Monument Park, I think, mm. out in Idaho, and the Japanese people and tourists and buses kept coming through. They've taken the photo and are standing right in front of the camera. I think they didn't, maybe they didn't see me. I don't know, <laughs> but you, you do that. And another thing is I never take a, a photograph that I think is going to be a big seller. It has to talk to me. I, I have to feel it. And I don't care if anybody buys it or not, you know, it's just, it's an image that, speaks to me so i got to take the picture you know i'm interested in uh have you explored any color on your uh medium format or four by five camera because uh, you know you've done exclusively black and white and i understand what black and white is you remove color and now you're working you know, with shapes and textures and things like that but have you experimented with color at all never no uh, it's, it's a color photography never appealed to me that much some things do but by and large i don't really care for color color Photographs. Uh, in fact, uh, Edward Weston had a son, and I can't—I forget his. Uh, wasn't Brett? Was one of his, one of his sons. But he made the comment once that anybody could be taught to be a good color photographer because you're just copying what you see. But black and white—it's like you got to learn a, a foreign language because you got to know—is it going to go black or white or gray? And that that's the thing that I, I like the most about it. Right. Yeah, and you want to capture all those tones in that photograph, too. You want, right. you know, that's deep exactly blacks right. and all those yep. in-between tones. Yep. Yes, indeed. Well, real quick, you're also an Indiana artisan, and we only have about a little less than two minutes left. But tell us about the process of becoming an Indiana artisan. Uh, you had to just have to uh, limit or, or, or enter uh, a number, I think it was about five of our my images, and then they have a, a group that comes in and they jury it. And you get enough votes, you get in. If you don't, you don't. <laughs> but there's a benefit to being in it because they give you a website and uh, uh, exhibit possibilities also. Well, that's true. That's true. 
Well, J.D., we have about a minute left. I'm going to give you an opportunity to let people uh, find out how they can reach you uh, for to see your photography. And, uh, of course, you'll be doing the – it's going to be your first chance uh, doing the eclipse with uh, your camera. But uh, how can people find you, like on the Internet and such as that? I, I'm, I have an Etsy site. You go to etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash capital J, capital D, capital N, Nolan, dot com, or photography, photography, and that's it. You're in. And I also have, uh, we're in a, a part of a co-op. I was a co-founder of it. It's been in business for about 23 years in Zionsville, Indiana. It's called Art in Hand. Excellent. Oh. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air and sharing your uh, photographic experience. Uh, I'm sure our photographers in the audience and other people will really enjoy it. And good luck in shooting the eclipse that's upcoming uh, later this time. And we'll have a link on our website from your photograph. J.D. Nolan, photographer, uh, uses a 4x5 uh, uh, box-style camera. Thank you for coming on Art in the Air. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, thank you so much. It was so interesting. Um going along that journey with you about your life. It's really fascinating. Oh, it's, it's life's been a pleasure. Art in the Air listeners, do you have a suggestion for a possible guest on our show? Whether it's an artist, musician, author, gallery, theater, concert, or some other artistic endeavor that you are aware of, or a topic of interest to our listeners, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Hi, this is singer-songwriter Kenny White, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Lisa Grozik to Art on the Air. Lisa started writing in her teens, mainly poetry, continued through college, and began her first novel after she married— and a quick second novel came shortly after that. She is a high school English teacher and a runner, having participated in several Chicago marathons. Her novels are The Lonesome Isle and Above and Below. Plus, she has a poetry book titled And They Danced, Songs of Life. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. It's very nice meeting you, Lisa. Thank you for having me, and very nice to meet you as well. Well, Lisa, we always like to know about the background of uh, our guests. I know uh, since before this interview, we became Facebook friends. I see you almost running every morning, so it's like you have your little thing out there. So kudos to you for that. But our audience always likes to know all about you. I always like to say your origin story, how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about Lisa. Okay, well, I am uh, very well versed in Northwest Indiana. I grew up in Dyer, and as I, I like to say, I moved all the way to Cherville, so <laughs> really, really far. Um, I did go to IU Bloomington in between for college, but I have spent most of my life here in the region. Um, uh, very much, I honestly, I think I found my love for writing very young. When I was probably third or fourth grade, I had an assignment where I had to write a story, and um, I, I do not remember what teacher I had that year, so it's probably a good thing because I was not happy with the grade I received. I, I worked very hard on that story, and I only got a C, and I think ever since then, I just wanted to write. I, I don't know. It spurred something in me. So, it, so did, I, you, did you ask that teacher why a C, and were they able to give you any clues? 
No, it was elementary. I just remember being upset about it. I think I probably cried to my mom a little bit and then just let it go. <laughs> but I mean, I really didn't start writing again until high school. Were you involved but, in journalism in high school or anything like that? I was not. Um, I, I've always had a bit of an artistic flair, but it's been more on the visual side. Um, I tried drama in high school and find, found out very quickly that um, I get nervous on stage. And uh, so having that audience in front of me was a lot of pressure. Um, so, yeah, I decided not to do that. But, uh, but I, did find my, uh, I did find my people as far as authors go in high school. Um, I, actually, it wasn't even high school. It was middle school. Um, my eighth grade uh, middle school English teacher, shout out to Pam Miller, um, she inspired me. I've, uh, I actually, she introduced me to Edgar Allan Poe, who is probably my first love in literature. Um, and then from there I found my second love and that came along in high school and that was Stephen King. And, uh, so I, I always say, you know, when I'm giving my sort of elevator pitch, when I'm talking about my books, you know, I always say that, um, that I, I really, you know, I, I try to model my writing after Edgar Allan Poe and Stephen King with a little less score that I, I really, I, I appreciate the cleverness in their writing. And that's, that's what I try to embed in mine. So your book was actually, what is that? Uh, Songs of Life? Is that it? The, uh, and they danced at that one. Uh, was that the first one that you did? No, uh, that one came quite a bit later um no that was after both of my novels okay and that was actually i went into uh poetry was what i started writing in high school and um when i when i put together the songs of life i went through my old poetry file um both my college and high school poetry um went through it kind of piece by piece and looked at some of them and went boy boy i was angry that day and then other ones that I really enjoyed and, and thought, okay, these could make it in. So they kind of made the cut. And I put some from both college and from high school. And then I had written a couple pieces since then over the years. Um, and the, uh, the title piece, uh, And They Danced, actually was uh, something that was based on a dream that I had had. Um, and that was relatively recently, and by relatively, I mean probably in the last 10 years. So I, I found it very interesting when I read that you started your novel shortly after you got married, and it deals with, you know, good and evil and all of that. So so, so had you had the idea before you were married and just felt that that was the time you could start it, or what was it about the marriage that brought about the novels. <laughs> it was actually the honeymoon, believe it or not, and and my husband. Um, so we were uh, we were out on our honeymoon. We were on Martha's Vineyard. We were actually on a bus tour, which is where I start the Lonesome Isle. Um, and my husband, it, it, actually, we were going past this island, and it was a, a, a you know small abandoned island. And and both of us were like, wow, an island inside of an island. How cool is that? And he looked at me and said, this would be a great setting for a novel. And I went, yeah, you're right, it would. And it just sort of blossomed from there. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I know we went antiquing on our honeymoon. That's when I bought my first um, Underwood typewriter. Um, and 
you know, I have that right up here by me on my desk. Um, and I came home and I started writing, but it, it was one of those things that I wrote for a while and then I would set it down and then I would write for a while and then I would set it down. And it, it took me some time, but, uh, but the story just came together. What is the significance to you about the green eyes that really, that really stood out as a, you know, as part of the character and part of the book were the green eyes? I really think I've just always had a fascination with eyes that, that draw you in. Um, and honestly, most, most of the time they're blue, but I like, I like green because it was different. Um, you don't see a lot of green eyes all the time. I mean, yes, they exist, but, um, but it's just one of those, those things. I didn't want to do the prototypical blue, so I chose green, but, but it really, it is the fact that, that I think you can really just dig out a lot about a person from really looking closely in their eyes. So who is your first editor? Does your husband help you with that? Uh, you know, you say, well, hey, read this, whether you read it out loud or something like that. Does, is that someone who helps you edit? Uh, he's not so much a reader. No, um, I, I will. Usually it's teacher friends. I'll find teacher friends, um, who are willing to do a beta read with the latest, uh, cause both of these novels, um, I had, uh, revamped in the last couple of years. Um, I, I didn't change the story, but I updated them. Um, you know, being that those were the first stories that I, I read, there were some, some things that I felt needed to be done better. Um, so when I was doing that, in process of doing that, I, I did, I asked a couple of teachers to, to edit them for me. Um, you know, being an English teacher, I know a lot of English teachers. So a lot of times they'll, they'll, uh, they're usually the ones who are willing to give it a shot. <laughs> well, it's always good to have that, uh, get the objective eye on, on things. So describe for, uh, outside of your, uh, uh poetry books, the, the two books, and I guess there's going to be a third in the making, uh, what your genre is, I mean, for our audience. So, you know, since you haven't read it, but, you know, give us an idea of what exactly your genre of writing is. So that's something that I actually learned a little after I started writing because I don't really fit into the horror genre and I don't really fit into fantasy. And I don't really fit into kind of the supernatural, but I have elements of almost all of those in my books. So I believe it best fits into the uh, genre of speculative fiction, which I guess is best defined by that idea of speculation, speculating about, you know, things that, you know, the, the paranormal, like, again, the paranormal is in there in the Lonesome Isle, but really it's kind of a mystery story. It's also a story of a family coming back together after being, you know, blown apart by circumstance over years. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of realistic elements in it, but it also does have that paranormal edge to it and that, that mystery and suspense edge to it as well. So, again, I, I think the, the best category that does fit under is speculative fiction. You know, it might be a good point to maybe start with the first sample from the first uh, book uh, called The Lonesome Isle and maybe give us a setup. Then we can, you know, go into some of the exploration of that. So if you would, you want to read a little section of that? Absolutely. This is from the very beginning of the story. So chapter one begins. The night sky on the island was always the same. Stars sprinkled the black night, and there was a full moon that shone down on the sandy beach. The warm air seemed oddly calm through the treetop, though the treetops would sway periodically as if there was a wind that wasn't making it to the surface. 
Two figures outlined in the distance were having a heated discussion regarding what I may or may not do at some point in the future. She won't do it. I know it's been a long time, but I know my daughter. She is not about to come over here of her own free will just because you want her to. She has too much to live for. She's young and just starting out in life. I don't care how convincing you can be. She will not want to come, my mother said to the man with the bright green eyes. Oh, I think I can take care of her desires, he smiled. You're ridiculous, Dominic. She's full of life. She'll want to go back to her friends and family. Well, then, we'll just have to bring her friends and family here, my pet. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. Clarissa is just about ready, and so is Elizabeth. We'll all be together soon. And why do we want the friends and family here, she asked. Oh, it's all part of the plan, my dear. You'll see. There was that bothersome confidence again. My dream is coming to an end now. I've been having the same dream so often lately that it was more like a rerun playing on loop. Dominic was about to kiss my mother on, on the lips, then turn and look directly at me and wink. Then I'd wake up wondering again who the Renzen family was, who Clarissa was, who Dominic was, and why my mother, dead for the last 16 years, was arguing with him about me. Okay, and that's from The Lonesome Isle, uh, Lisa yes. Grosek. And uh, it's, uh, of course, available on Kindle, hardcover, paperback. Uh, and we'll give more information about how to get those and everything like that. So so you've teased uh, what's going on with that and uh, everything. So uh, without giving away, can you tell us just a little bit more about uh, the teaser audience and what's happening there? <laughs> sure. Um, and, and that's honestly probably one of the things that I'm most proud of is, is how, how I kind of start that and, and draw, draw audience in. Um, and, and it, it does lead into a very convoluted story of mother and, and daughter, um, kind of how their differences, their similarities, how they've, um, you know, how they form in one another and about one another while also sharing kind of a bit of a love story, uh, you know, the, the, the family that comes in that's a little separate. Again, I'm trying to work around without giving too much away. But, um, you know, the, the family that comes in and how they end up being an integral part of that, the family that's in the main story, the uh, Elizabeth and her mother. And so that all kind of gets blown up through uh, you know, the, the separation, the parallel universe, the years that they've been apart and kind of, the, the life that's been lived in between, and then how it all comes back together in the end. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media 89.1 FM on WVLP 103.1 FM. How do you personally begin your work? Do you lay out chapters? Do you know where it's going to wind up? Do you, I do not. How long does it take I, to how how long does it take to uh, develop the characters? You know, when do you meet them in the process? I am a classic, I write it as it comes kind of writer, um, and which that tends to get in my way sometimes. There are times where I wish I could be a planner when it comes to writing my novels, um, but I've never been a planner. Uh, even, you know, back in college, I actually tried it. I tried to listen to my teachers at one point, and, <laughs> you know, I wrote an essay where I let it sit for a while. I had it done well ahead of time, let it sit, came back to it, did some editing, turned it in and it didn't do poorly, but it was not the best grade I've gotten in college. I usually work well under pressure. Um, so 
how how the it, interestingly enough when i wrote the loans a mile i actually had a whole other character in there and through the course of writing the story he just sort of petered out and so i took him out um and and i found the story didn't miss him and then one of my main characters who again i don't want to reveal too much about um but one of my main characters actually followed an entirely different path than I had first laid out for that character. So it, it definitely, I kind of, I, I write as I go. Sometimes I try to loosely sketch out, like with this last book, I know where I want it to end. Um, and of course I know who my characters are because it's part of a series. Um, but as far as kind of the meat of how A is going to get to B, I'm still, I work on that as I do the writing. When you first wrote your first novel, did you think that this was going to be a series or, I mean, I, having read the ending, I have kind of a feeling about that, but did you say, okay, this is book number one and then there'll be a book number two or, or you, did you yeah. plan that? No, that came along later. Um, I kind of set it up to where it could be. Um, but at that point when I had fr- finished that first book, I was just so thrilled that I had written a book <laughs> that I was like, well, I could, I could continue this, but I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to, I have a lot going on, you know? Um, so I did not, I, again, kind of had it loosely in my mind, but, uh, but no, I, di- I didn't know. Um, and I most certainly never expected there to be a third uh, right. That, and do you do you see it ending at a third or do you think it might? I, I mean, like, what's your impression? I do see it ending at a third. I have um, a couple of book starts that are separate. They're standalones from the Lonesome Isles series. And I really want to give them their due. There's one I'm especially excited about. And uh, and I want to be able to, you know, get back to those. So. Um, so, yes, I do feel that this this is going to be the end. I would just say there's just something about that three. I, I kind of I like ending it on on a third. So, do you share your writing in your books with your students? Is I do that- not. <laughs> that is something that um, I let them find. In fact, I have a very cool story. If 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 I have a minute, yes. It was just this last school year. Um, So generally, just to answer your question, generally they know I'm a published author. I have my books in my classroom. Um, and I will be more than happy to answer questions, but I'm always worried about kind of that fine line between work and, and my position as their teacher and, and everything. So, so I don't, I don't really do that unless they ask me to. Um, but the, the very cool story was at the end of this last school year, I had a student come to me, this is, you know, not unusual asking me to sign their yearbook as the year was getting ready to end. So I signed his yearbook and handed it back to him. And he said, okay, can you sign this now? And he handed me my book. And that was just like the coolest thing. It was the coolest experience I've ever had. Which one was it? It was The Lonesome Mile. The Lonesome Mile. Okay. Mm -hmm. So oh, nice. Yeah. So talking about the uh, uh, your sequel, um, and without giving away too much, but I think it's okay, is it does happen sometime later. So I think it would be a good time to hear a reading uh, about that and hear a little bit from your sequel novel, how that relates. So that's uh, from Above and Below. Awesome. 
Okay, Above and Below, this is also from the beginning of the novel. Um, it's a little bit shorter on this one. Um, and this one includes a prologue, so this doesn't die right in. This is as long before. He looks so much like you, Thomas said while adoring our son, all except for those green eyes. I'm so glad our little Mitchell finally came to join us. As Thomas finished his statement, he turned his eyes to glare at me, which suddenly became flame red. His face quickly elongated, and his features became razor sharp. He seemed to be struggling with a screen that wanted to break through his locked jaw. His agonized expression only lasted a moment, and then he broke into the sweetest, most charming smile. This was no longer my husband of six months. This was the man that tried to take me away from everyone that I loved. Dominic's eye color turned the superficial green that it had been during the time I'd known him. They were the emerald green that I could never quite get enough of, the same color of the sun that he was still cradling in his arms. A terrified sound came breaking through the surface, and before I knew it, Thomas was in a panic. Lil, Lil, Elizabeth, honey, wake up. It's just a dream. You're safe. Honey, you're safe with me. Thomas's arms were around me, holding me tight, comforting me with their strength. The streams, screams stopped and the tears began. As usual, Thomas rocked me gently, like I was a child, and waited for it to stop. This can't be good for the baby, he lamented while he held me. I know it's hard to do, honey. But honey, Dominic is dead. We watched him die. He's not coming back. You have nothing to fear. And then uh, they'll tease into the third book in our last you know, few minutes here. We take the next story, and so we're going to follow the same characters. Uh, is that going to happen like on the tail end of uh, your second book? or does it? Does yes. It, that okay. one time-wise or timeline-wise is going to handle or is going to come about just after the end, maybe a month or so, but certainly not not several years later. Same locale. Everything will be the same locale. Yes. And, okay. yes. Do you have yep. a title pick for it yet? Uh, dividing Lines. Okay, excellent. And then you have some other books in the works. We Are those going to be in the paranormal genre, or are they going to be something completely different? I have one that's in the paranormal genre, and that is the one that I'm most excited for. That is the one that I mentioned. Um, and that one is called Shuttered. I do have a title for that one. Um, and then there's a sci-fi that I've started, and I really love the way it started, but I'm a little stuck on where to go with the story. And then I have a little bit more of a personal story that's certainly not, um, not, not, not in the, the paranormal genre at all. So that one is kind of on the back burner, and we'll see if I ever get to it. Okay. Are what? you still writing poetry? Here and there, not very often. It's something I want to get back to. I just, usually it's it's one of those things I would love to do more. I just don't often find the time. And I've actually recently found a love for photography. So, but I usually do that while I'm running. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, real quick, one thing, uh, where do you write? Is uh, Do you write at your uh, desk? Do you have a, and do you have a disciplined time that you do that? You say so much every day or is it the weekend or what? I have a desk, uh, my, my, actually the one I'm sitting at right now, um, and this is typically where I do my writing, and I do try, tend to zone in, um, and so I don't, I don't follow a great schedule, I kind of schedule in here and there when I can find the time. I will say, though, that once I do get into that story, whatever it is I'm writing, literally the entire house could be burning down around me, and I would not notice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Lisa, in our last few moments here, we want to give you a chance to tell us about website where people can find your books, uh, contact you, and things like that. 
Sure. Um, my website is uh, grozekrights.com. Um, I am available on Amazon. That's usually the, the easiest place to find my books, but my books are also available on my website. So those two are probably the best. Excellent. So that's Lisa Grozik. She's a Northwest Indiana author. Her novel is The Lonesome Isle, and the sequel is Above and Below, and her third one is coming out shortly. Thank you so much for coming on Art of the Air and sharing your writing journey. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much. We'd like to thank our guest this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker and for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art in the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know.